Good morning, everybody. We are this month uh, looking at the book of Colossians. And last week, um, you heard me preach on chapter 2, and uh, we looked at um, verses 6 to 15. And we're going we're gonna to take a little more in-depth look today. We would have covered this last week, but of course the weather prevented us from doing this. Um, and so I want to I go ahead and read this passage again from Colossians 2. And if you've still got that outline that I gave you um, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, uh, it's an outline adapted from N.T. Wright's uh, commentary on Colossians in which he basically argues that the first chapter and the first couple of verses are basically a, an introduction to the letter where Paul is explaining, here's how I'm thanking God for you, here's how I'm praying for you, here's how I'm working for you. And then this chapter and the next chapter, chapters two and three, are where he's basically going to warn against, here's the wrong way to walk in Christ, right? Here's the wrong way to live in Christ. And then chapter three that we'll be looking at in our uh, service today, here's, the, here's what you are supposed to do as those who are raised with Christ. So uh, again, let's just look here at... Um, Chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tra tradition, according to the elemental spirits, or the footnote says the elemental principles, elementary principles, I think that's probably a better translation, of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, or footnote, in it. It could be translated either way, a reference to Christ or a reference to the cross. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, or footnote again, about the things he has seen, 
puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, um, Lord, this is a, a challenging passage, and yet it speaks to us so clearly about our completeness in Christ and that he is the, the only true source of life, and that any other religion, any other way to, um, to come into your presence, except apart from the one mediator between God and man, is futility, no matter how righteous it may look, no matter how uh, religious and holy it may look. Lord, only in Christ uh, can we have true life. Only in Christ do we have access to you. Only in Christ do we become do we become the true temple in which you dwell by your Spirit? Lord, we thank you that it is in him and so clearly revealed in him that we are your people, that you are transforming the world, that you are bringing about that, that cosmic redemption that we read about in chapter 1, that you are reconciling all things to yourself, things on earth and things in heaven, through uh, the glorious cross of Christ. Be with us as we continue to reflect on these things and as we approach you once again as your people in worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before we start looking at this, again, just a reminder that verses 6 and 7 are kind of a, kind of a theme verse. Um, and we talked about a little bit last week in the sermon, right? Different ways that we received him. This word received has to do not just with, it's not just about our personal reception by faith, but it's referring to a receiving a tradition that is handed down, okay? So what, what Paul is saying is that essentially all the ways that I've taught you about Christ in chapter one, Okay, that's how you've received him. You've received him as Lord. You've received him as the head of, a, of creation. You've received him as the head of a new creation. You've received him as the crucified one. Okay, so, so it's all these kind of ways that Paul has laid out uh, who Christ is in the first chapter that they have received him. Another thing I want to point out is um, the, the way that uh, we are to walk in him, there, there's... Um, there's four participial phrases in verse seven. And, and one, thing, one of the ones that's interesting is abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Um, the word thanksgiving, I think it occurs at least a half a dozen times in this letter. It's, it's kind of an important theme. Paul begins, as he normally does with his letters in a thanksgiving. He prayed for them back in chapter one. Uh, that as the, uh, they would bear fruit in every good work and that they would be abounding in thanksgiving, right? Or giving thanks to the Father, verse 12. And then it, the context of that giving thanks is everything that God has done in Christ through the, pretty much the rest of chapter 
um, the rest of chapter 2. And then in our, in our sermon text today, uh, in chapter 3, um, he's going to say, verse 15, be thankful, right? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And then he's going to say in chapter 4, um, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, Okay, with Thanksgiving. So, you know, you may remember at the end of um, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, um, pray without ceasing, be thankful in everything, right? It, it's, a, it's a cardinal Christian virtue, okay, to be a thankful people, right? And there's all kinds of things that we can give thanks for, and there's all kinds of things that we should give thanks for. Um, you know, daily bread, um, clothing, this time of year, shelter, right? <laughs> the heat staying on, um, all, the, all the things we need to conduct our daily lives, right? Work, those kind of things. But obviously in the context of a letter like this, it's not just our, our physical needs, right? It's, it's, the, it's the grand plan that God is executing. Now, now meeting our physical needs is part of that, right? You can't send missionaries if you don't have a job to pay a tithe to help support those missionaries, okay? You can't send missionaries if they're not being born in, in Christian households and raised up to know the gospel and go out and preach the gospel, okay? So, so it, it's all part of that, but I'm just saying that, that there's, a, there's a particular emphasis, and of course you can find it in, in all kinds of passages, but it was just something that as I've been studying this letter, I'm getting ready to, to speak um, on this letter at a conference in a couple of weeks out in New Hampshire, and, and I've, just, I've just noticed, you know, you read something over and over and over again, certain things jump out to you, and this thing of thanksgiving just really uh, jumped out at me. All right, so um, the Colossian heresy. Um, so again, Right after he says, walk in him, and again, the, that reminds us, doesn't it, that faith has to be um, put into practice, right? It doesn't, just, it doesn't just say think in him. It doesn't just say reflect in him, right? Our, our faith has to be put into practice. But anyway, he goes on to warn them, okay, um, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, again, before we get into this, I just want to remind you what he says in verse 5. Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So, you know, a lot of times you'll have commentators that get so fixated on what's going on in chapter 2, and, and of course it is a big issue, but they'll act like it's exactly like what's going on in Galatians, right? Galatians, I think, is different because it's coming, whatever's going on in Galatians, it's coming right out of the pulpit. Okay, there's these false teachers that have come down from Jerusalem. They claim to have the authorization of maybe James or, or Peter. You know, they didn't, they didn't, but they claim to have that. And, um, and, so, and so it is a, 
you know, it's a threat that's happening live, okay? Whereas this is more of something that's out there and you gotta watch out for it, okay? Don't be seduced by it, but you know, you already have what you need in Christ. You have received Christ. You are stable in Christ, okay? And so it would be sort of similar to, to this church, right? I don't, think, I don't think there's a bunch of heretics running around, you know, preaching from the pulpit of this church, okay? Anyway, um, all right. So first of all, um, there's one study, there's, there's been doctoral dissertations written on chapter two uh, because it is, it is kind of vague and esoteric. And, and there's one author who says that there's like 46 different interpretations of chapter two. Okay, these are some of the major ones. These are some of the major ones. This is from Peter O'Brien's commentary uh, back in the late 70s. So J.B. Lightfoot was a, a famous British uh, commentator in the 19th century, and he thought that it was some kind of Essene Judaism. Essene Judaism is, by the way, where um, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 in the Qumran uh, district on the northwest side of uh, the Dead Sea um, is associated with the Essenes, and they were they were so kind of um, secretive that you don't even you don't even read about them in the New Testament unless this is the one passage that's talking about them. Okay, um, you know, basically in the first century you've got Pharisaism, you've got Sadduceeism, you've got zealotry, right? The people who want to fight against the Romans, and then you've got the Essenes. And then, of course, comes along the Nazarenes, right? The followers of, of Jesus of Nazareth. So you got these, these different branches of Judaism going on. Um, Martin de Baileus thought it was a pagan mystery cult. Um, these mystery cults were around the time of Christ where you had, to, you know, they were like secret societies and you, um, you know, you had to go through a, a secret ritual of initiation and they kind of like Gnosticism a century later, they promised this secret knowledge that would give you, you know, access to the divine and the transcendent through these, these rituals that you went through. Um, uh, Borncom said that they were a syncretism of Gnosticized Judaism and pagan elements. And that's probably the most common view that you find in a lot of commentaries. And then Leonette, a Judaizing syncretism. <clears throat> Um, or a Jewish Christian mystical asceticism. So basically, almost everybody says that this is some sort of mixture of Judaism and Gnosticism, Judaism and paganism. And part of the reason is that, you know, the term philosophy doesn't seem to be a very Judaistic term. Uh, the terms human tradition, the terms um, asceticism, things like that, uh, you know, don't seem to fit neatly. Um, and, and yet at the same time, you know, as I pointed out to you last week in the sermon, you have these references to circumcision, you have these references to the Sabbath, you have these references to um, things that look like a kosher diet, right, food and don't touch and don't eat. And so there, there has to be some kind of Judaism there. Um, one of the things that we know from history in terms of, um, are, are you familiar with the temple tax? 
Okay, can anybody tell us what the temple tax was? <laughs> yeah, it was a tax. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Exodus chapter 30, I think, is where they, they connected it for the tabernacle and then eventually for the, um, for the, for the temple. And there's a reference to Christ, right? They, they come to him and say, you know, how come you don't pay the tax, right? Uh, there's this whole discussion in Matthew 17 about it. Anyway, we know that there were thousands of coins collected from the Lycus Valley region in the century before Christ. And so there's evidence that there's at least a thousand Jews living in the Lycus River Valley, which again, we're talking about Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, okay? Um, Laodicea and Hierapolis are more important cities at this point. Colossae's heyday was like 200 BC, and it was sort of steadily declining, okay? Um, you know, you can think of a, of a great city that you know that was, you know, there was a, there was a Maytag manufacturing there, right? Uh, we used to live near a city where there's a big Maytag factory, and that, that put that on the map. And then the Maytag closed, and it just steadily declined. And that's kind of what Colossae is by the time of the middle of the first century. Anyway, so there's at least a thousand Jews in this area, which means there's all kinds of synagogues, okay? There wasn't just one synagogue with a thousand people in it. There's, there's probably, you know, whole networks of synagogues in this region where, again, Christianity is kind of a brand new thing in this particular city. Again, J.B. Lightfoot, this guy up here, he's got this famous line where he says, you know, Colossae was without doubt the least important city that Paul ever wrote to. Not even Paul himself went there, okay? Now, he's planning to go there. Philemon's written at the same time as, as Colossians, and so he's planning to go there and visit Philemon, uh, but he's never been there yet, okay? Um, and, and we don't have definite evidence that he, that he actually did go, but we pro he probably did eventually make it there. So, I want to suggest to you that when you look at this language closely, that it actually is about Judaism. And, and I want to say something um, here, just because of in, in light of current world events, okay, to remind us that as much as the New Testament is very critical of any claim to Abrahamic lineage um, that is divorced from Christ, okay, you know, the, the man who has the harshest things to say against the Jews, right, the Apostle Paul, he himself was a Jew, and in the, at the end of this letter, he's going to give thanks to God that he has Jewish brethren among his fellow co-workers, okay? Just because he says things against Judaism doesn't mean that he's anti-Semitic, okay? In fact, he even says in Romans 10, you know, would that I were cut off for the sake of my brethren according to the flesh, okay? So, so anytime the New Testament, now, now of course we live in this world now, this kind of multicultural postmodern world where if you say any other view is wrong, well, that makes you, what, a bigot, narrow-minded, you know, uh, you're, you're not broad-minded enough, okay? 
So, so we, we need to recognize that uh, we're, we're kind of in this situation where if you don't accept everybody's truth, you know, that you're a bad person, okay? You know, you don't believe in diversity or, you know, all, all this kind of garbage that we're dealing with uh, today. Um, so anyway, I, I just want to say that just because Paul may be a, a, against certain practices, um, you know, he's going to go on and say in the next chapter, there's neither Greek nor Jew, there's neither circumcised nor uncircumcised, which means, you know, you can be accepted in Christ no matter what your background is, okay? Um, and, and so, anyway, I just wanted to kind of make those comments. Now, first of all, we know that there's, there's, a, that there's some kind of Judaism going on here. Just think about, and we looked at this last week, this discussion about circumcision here in verses 11 to uh, 13. You know, obviously, the people who Paul is concerned about, they must be advocating circumcision. Um, and, and, so, and so clearly that's why it's part of the discussion here. And, and Paul's point, of course, is you've already received a circumcision made without hands. Okay, um, the promise that God made through Moses, you know, 1500 years earlier, God will circumcise your heart. It's not happening in the synagogue down the street. Okay, it's happening. It's happened to you. Okay, it's happened to you, believers in Israel's Messiah. Now, the reference here to a record of debt. Um, again, it's not as clear as Ephesians 2. 15 that talks about the law of commandments that divided Jew and Gentile, and yet that fits very nicely with this understanding of the law, right? We're going to be judged according to the moral law on the last day. There's books that are going to be opened, right, according to the book of Revelation, and so that seems to be, um, and it is interesting that uh, the only two places where Paul uses the word dogma, from which we get the word dogmatics, uh, or, or dogmatic, is here and in Ephesians 2.15. Uh, and, and that's just a reminder, by the way, Ephesians and Colossians, probably written at the same time, uh, along with Philemon, and very much parallel letters. Okay, very much parallel letters. Um, Colossians more occasional in the sense that it's, it's addressing a specific occasion. Um, Ephesians more broader in the sense that, you know, yes, it talks about Jews and Gentiles, but there, there doesn't seem to be a specific um, event that Paul is addressing in Ephesians. It's more of a Catholic letter, you might say. And then you have these explicit references to elements of Torah in verse 16, um, the, the, the festival, the new moon, the Sabbath, okay, all those all that calendar that's advocated in the Old Covenant law. Um, and then down in verse 21, we have these references to not handling, not tasting. Um, we have these regulations and asceticism. And again, there's lots of religions that you could apply that language to, but it certainly also fits very nicely with um, what's going on in the Old Testament, right? Where it's all about ritual holiness that involves being separate 
from things, right? Being separate from pork, being separate from shellfish, being separate from the dead, right? You don't touch the dead. Um, having separate, um, oh, what am I trying to say? You don't have mixed um, ways to make your clothes, right? You've got to use one single kind of thread to make your clothes. There's a separation, right? And all of that was a, was a ritual holiness that was to communicate that, that God is like that and that his people are supposed to be like what, what, what they experience ritually is what they are supposed to be morally and, and internally and relationally. <clears throat> um, now, you have this interesting phrase, uh, the elements of the world. Um, the ESV has elemental spirits. That's kind of a carryover from the old RSV. Um, I, I, you know, in other words, like earth, air, fire, and water, right? What's going on in the Greco-Roman world. But, but what's interesting is the only other place where that phrase is used is in the book of Galatians, which of course we know is all about this effort to kind of mix old covenant and new covenant, okay? This effort to kind of hold on to the ceremonial law after Christ has come. And so, you know, again, I think that just sort of makes us think that with Paul using that same vocabulary here, you know, maybe 20 years late, we don't know exactly. We know that this letter is written either in the late 50s or the early 60s. It depends on whether he wrote it from Rome or from Ephesus. Um, but that he wrote Galatians much, much earlier. In fact, I'm of the opinion that Galatians was probably written before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, uh, rather than being written after uh, that council. Again, there's debate about that, and I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die on a hill for that opinion. Anyway, so all these things kind of combine together to say he seems to be addressing not some kind of syncretism um, between Judaism and something else, but it, it, I think our first, our first impulse is to say, no, he's addressing Judaism, okay? Now, it may be a particular flavor of Judaism that was perhaps somewhat unique to what's going on there in Western Turkey uh, in the Lycus River Valley. Maybe it's not exactly like uh, the Pharisaism that you see in Palestine um, or the Sadduceeism that you see in Palestine. Anyway, um, now, here's another interesting factor here, and this is something we're going to look at in our, our sermon today, is if you go over to the next uh, chapter in chapter 3, um, here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Now, if you know Paul's letters... You know that he likes to use these different categories, right? I think he does it in Ephesians. Um, you know, he talks about in Romans, uh, I, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. You know, first to the Jew, then to the Greek, okay? Um, he uses these different categories. But did you know 
that this is the only time in all of his letters that he doubles a reference to Judaism. Okay? In other words, there'll be other places where he'll say circumcision and uncircumcision, or he'll say Greek and Jew, but this is the only time where he says it both at the same time. Okay? And again, I think that's significant because I think he's, he's trying to tell these Gentile Christians, again, don't let these people over here who are telling you that you're not the people of God because you haven't been circumcised, because you're not a descendant of Abraham, because you're not of one of the, one of the tribes of Israel, okay? That's not true. If you are in Israel's Messiah, you are the people of God. Then he goes on in the next verse to say, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay, elect, holy, and beloved. Guess what? Those are all Israel categories. Okay, and I could show you all kinds of verses where that's true, okay? But if you look at Deuteronomy, uh, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter uh, six, no, seven, sorry, I, I put the wrong reference down here. I don't know why I put that down here. Whoops. Oh well. Um, yeah, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter seven, Verse 6, for you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you. Okay? So we could look at Psalm 108, you know, Israel's called the beloved of God. We could look at all kinds of other passages. But here you've got all three of those terms in a tight concentration to say this is who, you know, the old covenant people of God are. And now Paul is using that exact same language to address these uncircumcised, non-Jewish Christians, followers of Messiah, to say, and that's what you guys are. Okay? Meaning... Don't believe these people over in the synagogue who tell you you can't be holy because you don't eat a holy diet. Okay? You can't be chosen because you haven't gone through the ritual of circumcision. You can't be beloved because you're not descendants of Abraham. Okay? No. <laughs> you are in the seed of Abraham. You are in the son of David. You are in the Messiah. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether you've been circumcised or uncircumcised. Those, those old, outdated, um, you know, the, the, the title for this talk is, um, I'm calling it Trapped in the Past. Okay, see that it, no one takes you captive. Okay, Trapped in the Past, a, a timed out Torah. All right. Um, now, what about some parallel passages? Well, interestingly, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul uses the exact same command, watch out, look out, see to it, okay, that he uses here in chapter 2, verse 8. Watch out for the dogs, 
for the, for the mutilators, okay? For we are the circumcision, okay? Again, writing to these Gentile Christians in Philippi, dealing with very kind of similar issues, although this might be more of the Galatian issue in Philippians than it is the Colossian issue. And I'll, I'll talk about the differences between those here in a little bit. And then um, Hebrews chapter 10, again, maybe written by Paul, not necessarily. But again, that's where this, this, this contrast between shadow and substance that we find in Colossians 2. Uh, whoops, I got to get back to my passage here. <clears throat> Colossians 2, verse 17. These are a shadow, right? Sabbath, food and drink, new moon, festival. These are a shadow of... Uh, the things to come, but the substance, the reality, belongs to Christ. Well, that's the same kind of contrast. And again, Hebrews is very much um, about Jewish Christians who are attempted to leave the church and go back to the synagogue. Right? Um, that's why it's all about the superiority of the new covenant Right? Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to the angels through whom God gave the law. Christ is superior to, to um, Aaron. Right? There's a superior priesthood okay, that it will bring an end to all sacrifices. Okay? So again, it's written to these, these Jewish Christians in the first century and, and saying, don't go back here. Okay? If we deliberately sin against God after coming to the knowledge of the truth, there, there remains nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment, right? That, that's Hebrews chapter 10 later on. So the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, okay? So it's basically saying the same thing that Colossians 2, and, and Hebrews is dealing very much with the temptation to go back to Judaism for Jewish Christians. And, and they're the only two letters that use this term shadow, uh, only two places in the New Testament, or only two epistles. Uh, I think John might use it in his gospel. Now, another interesting parallel is Titus chapter 1. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, again, I'm not sure, I don't know whether that's talking about non-Christian Jews or, or Christian Jews who are trying to force, the, the Galatian error, trying to force um, Gentiles to become Jews in order to become Christians, okay? But think about this, verse 14, not devoting themselves to the Jewish myths or the commandments of men, the same kind of language that's used here at the end of chapter two. Uh, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Which again, that, that probably sounds like non-Christian Jews there, okay? So again, another interesting sort of parallel to what's going on here. Now, what about some of the problems here with some of this other language that doesn't sound very Jewish, which is why people think that it's some kind of syncretism with Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism or um, Phrygian philosophy, okay? Uh, Phrygia was a region there in, um, in Asia Minor and Turkey. Well, 
What's interesting is, is that in this time period, you have a lot of uh, Jews who are using the term philosophy to commend Judaism. And again, just to remind you, I'm defining Judaism as the effort to have an Old Testament religion after the New Covenant has come. Okay, The effort to have an Old Testament religion. In other words, you didn't really have Judaism in the Old Testament. Okay, But it's after Christ comes and brings a new covenant, and yet you're still trying to hold on to the old. That's what I'm, that's what I'm calling Judaism. Um, in other words, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Isaiah and Moses practiced Judaism. They practiced the true religion okay, that was appropriate for their time. Anyway, Philo, he was, a, he was an Alexandrian uh, Jew who was advocating Judaism by using the term philosophy. Josephus, same way. And again, I, I shared this with you in the sermon last week. Don't think that eating unclean meat is a trifling offense, right? Observing the, the, the law of Moses. For a transgression of the law, whether in small or great matters, is of equal importance. Ceremonial law is just as important as moral law. For in either case, the law is equally slighted. But you deride our philosophy as though we lived in it irrationally. Yet it instructs us in self-control so that we are superior to all pleasures and lusts, right? Again, think about what Paul is saying here. Uh, Let no one disqualify you. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay? You know, you can't pretend that just abstaining from pork is going to make you overcome lust. Okay? You can't pretend that observing the old covenant calendar is going to keep you from greed. That's, that's part of what Paul's trying to say here. Okay? Um, the, the law has no power in itself, right? He says elsewhere in Romans 7, all the law does is excite our lusts. You know, it tells you not to do these things, and it's like, oh, you're, you're thinking about it all the time, so you do it. Okay? It has no power to restrain. So don't think that eating unclean meat, okay? So anyway, the point is, is that you have people advocating Judaism in the first century by using the term philosophy. Now, human tradition, what do we do with that? Because Paul says elsewhere, the law is good and it's of divine origin. Well, let's not forget, again, we're talking about trying to hold on to all of the law, the ceremonies, the rituals, all of the law after Christ has come and abrogated all, all kinds, you know, we talk about Ten Commandments, the, 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 you know, the rabbis, you know how many they, they talk about? 613 commandments, okay? 613 commandments, right? Don't burn wood on the Sabbath, um, you know, all the, all the calendar elements, okay? And, you know, Jesus ends up saying, he ends up quoting Isaiah uh, 29, I believe it is, um, in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines. And here he's addressing, right, why do your disciples not eat with, uh, why do they eat with unwashed hands, right? Which wasn't something in the law proper, but was this tradition of the elder where what happens in the, in the centuries before Christ, 
through the Pharisees and through others, is to take things that were simply for the priests and say all of the people need to observe them. Okay? You know, it was the priests who had to wash their hands so that they could go in and offer the sacrifices. And so the, the traditions of the elders were saying, well, if it's good enough for the priests, it must be good enough for me. Okay? Uh, and of course, you can kind of understand, like when you're far away from the temple and hardly ever get an opportunity to go there because you live in Babylon or you live in Greece, okay, why some of these traditions might develop. But the point is, is that this exact same language, um, verse, uh, sorry, verse um, 8 and verse 22 has parallels in the Gospels with Jesus' teaching. Now, perhaps the most difficult one is the worship of angels, because people will say, well, Jews didn't worship angels, right? They worshiped God. In fact, they, they specifically had prohibitions against worshiping angels. So this must be referring to some kind of Gnosticism, where you've got to use an angel as a mediator to get you into the presence of God. Well, there's a couple of different ways that we could think about this. <clears throat> One, is this saying, is this referring to people worshiping angels or just an acknowledgement that the angels offered worship to God? And so it's somehow trying to, to gain access. You know, you think of um, Daniel, right? And he has angels who come and speak to him. Uh, and, and he talks about myriads of angels. Or you, you think of Isaiah, right, seeing the, the, the cherubim there surrounding the throne, okay? So this could be a reference to worship that is offered by angels, or alternatively, think about um, what the New Testament repeatedly says about the law, that it was given... what through angels right we don't really have that clearly narrated in in the old testament okay but paul makes this reference in galatians and i think hebrews talks about it as well that the law was given through angels and so what paul this might be kind of like the term philosophy paul somewhat mocking these people that in their that in their devotion to the law, which they think is bringing them close to God, all it's doing is creating angel worship, okay, angelolatry we could call it, right? So so what they think is actually God's will, right? Um, they're the chosen people, they're the holy people, right? It's it's actually it's just leading to this kind of form of of idolizing the ones through whom God gave the law. So I think that's, that's a couple different ways that we could handle that specific phrase in verse 18. Um, now, here's another interesting thing that we gain insight from the original Greek. So in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. Okay, it's one word, ha solagogon. Okay, Sulagogon. It's the only time it occurs in the, uh, the New Testament. And if you look at it, it looks a lot like another word. Okay? In fact, if you take this lambda, the third letter of the word, and you flip it upside down, it looks like a V in English, but guess what, it, what letter it is in Greek? 
It's the letter new. N. Okay? So it's almost exactly like the word hasunagogon. So what Paul seems to be doing here is making a pun on the word synagogue to say, make sure that you don't get taken captive by the synagogue. Okay? The, the, the sulagogon, the thing that will take you captive, is the synagogon. All right? So that's an, another interesting way beyond kind of the obvious. And, th and this would have been very obvious to the original readers of this letter that we're all you know, reading it in Greek. Um, and in addition to all the kind of obvious things on the surface, like circumcision, Sabbath, uh, things like that. <laughs> if you're familiar with the game Dungeons and Dragons, I don't know where, where, who created this picture, but I thought this kind of captured, captured <laughs> nicely uh, the sentiment here, okay? The, the synagogue is going to uh, take you captive, Talmuds and tunnels. Um, all right, now, now here's the problem with, with a lot of the other views, is that the reason why there's 44 different views is because when people try to say Judaism plus, we don't really find that in the first century, right? The, the Jews were all about, we want to hold on to our traditions. Now, granted, I'm, I'm not saying that there weren't occasional times of syncretism or, or um, backsliding, we might say, okay? But no syncretistic religion has yet been discovered which had exactly this blend of things pagan and Jewish as supposedly seen in Colossians 2, nor is this a mere accident of our limited historical knowledge since it is, in fact, difficult to conceive of even the possibility of such a blend, okay? The Jews were all about retaining their right to be separate, to not offer incense to, to the emperor, right? That's what, that's what got a lot of Christians in trouble as they separated from the synagogue. I mean, originally, they're kind of under the umbrella of being fellow Jews, but eventually, you know, they start being persecuted by the Jews, getting kicked out of the synagogue, just as Jesus predicted. And so now they're back in a position where the state's demanding, hey, you better offer sacrifice to the emperor. Well, the Jews, had they were a religio licta, which means they were acknowledged as, as kind of their own thing, and they didn't have to offer um, incense to the, to the emperor, okay? So anyway, um, a guy named Banstra makes the same conclusion. He wrote this whole big monograph on Colossians 2, and he basically makes the same conclusion. We don't really see, in other words, if this is some kind of syncretism, this is like the only place where it was happening, okay? Which makes it sort of unlikely. All right. John Calvin, it's abundantly evident from Paul's words that these profligates, or one other translation says these rascals, were intent upon this, that they might mix up Christ with Moses and might retain the shadows of the law along with the gospel. Okay. Now, I disagree slightly with what he's saying there because he, he's sort of interpreting it through the same lens as Galatians. But he sort of recognizes... Um, that, that this is what's going on, that, it's, that it has to do largely with Judaism. Now, he's going to go on to say that there's also mixing with some form of Platonism. I disagree with him about that. But at least he's acknowledging what's sort of obvious on the surface. Now, you know, at, at the end of the day, 
this, notice the solution, okay? This is about Christ and our completeness in Him. So I could be totally way off base, and you can still rightly interpret this passage, but why, why, is this, why is it significant to spend time on trying to understand this, okay? And, 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 and again, it has all kinds of applications to any effort to gain access to God, to gain blessing from God, to gain the knowledge of God apart from Christ, okay? And, and, and again, Judaism's still around, so it's still relevant to that. Islam is sort of a Judaistic Christian heresy, we might say. You know, one of, one of Muhammad's wives was an Nestorian Christian um, who was pretty influential on him. So, so there's all kinds of ways that it still is relevant, even beyond uh, Judaism. But why might this be important? Well, again, as we looked at in chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, the, this, the, all these references to fruitfulness, to being taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, uh, kingdom of God's Son, which is Exodus language, right? All these things in chapter 1 that are sort of portraying the church, these Gentile Christians, as part of a new creation, part of uh, a new exodus, part of being the people of God, apart from observing the law. It, it all kind of makes sense as why Paul is, you know, why is this the only letter where Paul expressly talks, uh, uses exodus language to talk about the gospel? I mean, he hints at it all over the place, but he expressly uses the, the same language from, from Deuteronomy and from Exodus back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Why? Why? And I think it's because he's, he's foregrounding all of that so that when he gets here to chapter 2, um, and, and basically says, well, this is just like any other pagan philosophy now. You, you've got the true religion. You know, you've got the true reality of what God is doing. Okay, They don't. So don't don't be don't be tempted, um, you know, by these people who have been practicing the word of God for 1,600 years by being circumcised. Don't be tempted to think that that's the place where you've got to go to continue growing. So I'm just saying the same thing here again. You know why why is this the only place where he's using all of this New Exodus language so explicitly uh, in ways that he just kind of hints at? But then also, when we come to the rest of the book, and we'll look at this a little bit more today in our sermon, you know, the ceremonial law cannot produce obedience to the moral law, okay? Going over to the synagogue and practicing all of these rituals, you know, this, this asceticism, this abstaining from pork, all of these things, they're not really going to produce the true holiness that God always required, okay? So I think that's part of the other reason why this is significant. And again, that would, that would apply to, to any other um, religious expression, uh, you know, all those that, have, that existed before the first century, all those that have developed since the first century. You know, the only way that you can actually begin to obey, and if, you know, if you remember my sermon on Colossians 3 uh, last year, I think it was last year, you know, it's only if you're ra crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Him in heavenly places that you can even begin to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to, to put on, 
It's only if you're clothed in Christ that you can put on compassion and mercy. Uh, it's, it's only, you can only be a new humanity if you're in the new man, okay? Not if you're in Moses, you know, not if you're in Abraham, but if you're in Christ. All right, questions, comments, contradictions. Yes. How do you relate Hebrews 1 and the worship of angels here versus what is being talked about in Hebrews 1? Do you see those as... Yeah, I think, I think they're similar, right? Because, because um, I mean, I, I think it's a different way of kind of addressing the same issue. But, you know, the author of Hebrews is saying, you know, to which of the angels did God ever say this, right? So, so don't be devoted to the angelic era, you know, the old covenant, to the angelic administration, to the angelic dispensation, if I could use that term, right? Something greater has come. The one who's actually the eternal son has come. God spoke to us in many different ways by the prophets, but he's spoken to us in these last days by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. So I, I think it's a, it's a, it's, 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 the same issue, but with different a different rhetorical strategy. Yeah. Yes, Matt. Yeah. I like how in verse 18 he really takes the wind out of the asceticist sails when he calls them sensuous and worldly. Because it seems like the goal of asceticism and esoteric knowledge is the exact opposite. It's to look more heavenly minded than everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it, it ends up producing kind of this spiritual pride, you know. I mean I mean, Jesus addresses this, right? They, they, they put dirt on their faces to say, hey, I'm fasting today, right? And I want you all to know it, <laughs> okay? Their, their, their religion is to be, they practice their righteousness to be seen by men. Uh, and that's pride, right? And so this is kind of another way of saying the same thing that Jesus is addressing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Yes. I have a couple of questions. One is on 2.15, when he says he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Are those the rulers and authorities in spiritual places? That's a great question. <laughs> I tried to address a little bit of it last week in my, in my sermon. Um, and I would, say, I would say yes, but I would also say, um, you know, like... like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that if the rulers and authorities of this world had known that they were crucifying the Lord of glory, I can't remember the exact language, I'm paraphrasing, you know, like they wouldn't have done it, okay? So yes, I think it is referring to spiritual authorities, right? Now is the ruler of this world cast out, Jesus says. But I also think, like I tried to outline in my sermon, right? The Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin thought as a power they were eliminating this troublemaker, well, God turned that on its head. Rome thought they were getting rid of a rival king. God turned that on its head and seated him at his right hand with all power and authority. So, so you know, we know that these things are not always, you know, it's not Frank Peretti and, and what was the other one, Sally, you were telling me about recently? Anderson. Um, oh. yeah. You know, all these demon stories, these demon movies, right? where it's like this full frontal assault. Well, no, I mean, you know, I mean, again, we gotta be careful here, but there's a reason why people label huge governments like ours, Leviathan, 
<laughs> right? I mean, that was one of the books that was written back during the Revolutionary War, right? Leviathan, you know, there's, there's demonic elements to how grossly bloated, um, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the, that the little guy typing, the little bureaucrat typing on his desk is like, is like satanic, but, but I'm saying there's a whole, there's a whole system involved there that we don't want to fail to uh, realize, um, so, so I think, it's a, I think it's a broad, comprehensive, and again, it's as broad and comprehensive as what he said about, it's those same rules and authorities that, that, that were created through him back in chapter one, and that he's reconciling to himself. So, so it's, it's as broad as that. Yeah. It was the Steve Dace. <coughs> What's that? It was the Steve Dace. Oh, oh yes. Uh, Steve Dace is this radio host on the Glenn Beck, and he wrote this book, Nefarious, that got turned into a movie last year. And so it's kind of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Vic. So, <coughs> verse 7 and 8, when I first read those as a new Christian, that was my mode of operation verses. You know, be firmly rooted in Christ yeah. and see to it. But this idea of you have a really strong obligation now that you keep your soul, you know, watch your heart with all diligence for from it flow this spring of life. And the influences in my life in Southern California were various. Mm. And, and I think that a lot of what any Christian can take, whether you're in a syncretistic view or not, it's influences of paganism, Hellenism, Judaism, in all of Europe, there, if you will, as you will, as it were, was strong. <laughs> and it was it's very interesting. For me, it was like, okay, you've got a mission if you choose to accept it. You know, don't allow anyone to take you captive. Right. And, and of course, you know, what's interesting is that Paul's answer right off the bat is to bring them back to Christ. Right before, in a sense, before he deal, deals with what you shouldn't be doing, he spends a whole bunch more verses, like he did in chapter one, talking about Christ. You know, my pastor used to say there was this um, woman who worked for the Treasury Department, and her job was to spot counterfeits. And somebody asked her once, "Well, how? how why were you so good at your job?" And she said, "Well, I, I never studied the fake money. I just kept studying the the real money, and and." And when I got to know the real money really, really well, I would always be able to spot the fakes. Okay, and that's what Paul is saying: is you don't you don't have to go out there and study every other religion. You just got to keep stay, staying grounded in Christianity. You know that's why we keep repeating the creeds. You know that's why we encourage you to learn your catechism. You know is just be grounded in the basics of 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 the faith. And, and again, I'm not saying that there aren't some people who are called to, to, to specialized training and, you know, what is Hinduism about and what is Islam about, okay? There's, there's people who are called to do that. But in terms of what most of us are called to do, we just need to stay rooted in Christ, growing in Christ, because that's the only place where we can be really fruitful. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for um, this day. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for Christ and being complete in him and that he's triumphed over every power that could be arrayed against us by his cross, by surrendering. Teach us to follow him in the path of humility um, and help us to always abide in him that we might bear much fruit uh, to your glory. We pray in his name.
Amen.